Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we're the sirens. Today we are talking about the movie Desk Set, which is a 1957 film starring Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. It was directed by Walter Lang, and it was written by Phoebe and Henry Efron, Efron who are the parents to Nora Efron, side note, um, and it is based on a play by William Marchant. Henry Efron also produced this film. It's the story of the research department at the Federal Broadcasting Company in New York City, where Bunny Watson, who's played by Katherine Hepburn, rules until Richard Sumner, who's played by Spencer Tracy, arrives to refit the office with Emmerich, a sophisticated computer that could replace Bunny and her whole department. A battle of wits, witty dialogue, lovers, and technology ensue. Mm -hmm. And lots of beeping. Oh my gosh, so much. (laughs) (laughs) So much beeping. Um, Do you have any trivia for this movie? Yes, I do. Um, Just a couple things. The Bunny Watson character was actually based on a real person, the librarian Agnes E. Law, who uh, built up the research library at CBS at the time and was tickled pink to have this character modeled after her. I mean, if Katherine Hepburn played me, I wouldn't care. Um, That would be the highlight of my life. Pretty much, yeah. It's... The first time that Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn appeared in a color film, mm. uh, this was their ninth film that they started together, and the, the next and last was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Which oh, came really? Out, um, yeah, ten years later. So, And actually, um, Spencer Tracy was almost 60 when this movie was made, and I was like, you look good. <laughs> yeah. Well, Katherine Hepburn is 57. Are you kidding me? She looks amazing. <laughs> I can't remember if she was 57 or 54, but, you know, she was she was in, a, in middle age, in advanced middle age when this movie came out. I definitely could have seen her as in her 30s in this movie. <laughs> so the United States government's ENIAC machine, which Emmerich was based on, had the slogan, Making machines do more so that man can do less. <laughs> which sounds so of that time. Yes. But it's actually kind of quaint that that was the idea. I feel like if that slogan was today, it would be like, making machines do more so we can increase our bottom line. Yeah. But this was supposedly trying to free up people's time. Yeah. Um, So you know the philodendron plant that Uh Bunny had in her office? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, That was actually Catherine Hepburn's own plant that she brought into the set. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I love that. I know. So I guess she hasn't had a green thumb. When Bunny gives Richard the striped scarf, saying that it's his college alma mater colors, uh, it was actually the colors of Spencer Tracy's college, Rippin. Oh, he went to Rippin? Yeah, he's a Midwestern guy. Yes. (laughs) And, um, And in the movie, he was supposed to have gone to MIT, so it's not accurate colors for that. That's right. As a Midwesterner, I absolve them of this inaccuracy. (laughs) Uh, And the large computer that you see here was made with input from IBM and Uh was then used repeatedly in future Fox movies, including The Fly and Dear Bridget. Yeah, I noticed at the beginning in the credits, they thanked the International Business Machines Corporation. You've seen um, Hidden Figures? 
Or yes. you read the book, right? I, I read so, I did both. Yes, same. And I kept thinking of that movie because that the, the computers literally took up the entire room and you had to feed cards into them. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like such a huge production for not a lot of payoff. But, I mean, maybe I'm a Luddite. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they had to do that in order to get to where we are today. Yes, I, I guess that's true. So who did you bio for this movie? I bioed Joan Blondell, who plays Peg, one of the researchers in the research department. Bunny Watson's best friend, right right hand. And so Joan Blondell was born Rose Joan Blondell on August 30th, 1906. That's my younger sister's birthday. She was born in New York to a vaudeville family. She actually made her very first appearance on stage at the age of four months when she was carried on stage in a cradle as the daughter of Peggy Astaire in the play The Greatest Love. So, what? Started early. Her family was, like I said, a whole vaudeville family. They were, they were called the Bouncing Blondells. They spent a year in Honolulu and then six years in Australia. Uh, when she was, while well, she was growing up, and then they finally settled in Dallas when she was a teenager. Under the name Rosebud Blondell, she won the 1926 Miss Dallas pageant, and then she was a finalist in a very early version of the Miss Universe pageant. And then that same year, she placed fourth in the Miss America pageant uh, in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Her family, I guess, moved to California for a bit because she went to Santa Monica High School, but she also then attended what's now known as University of the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, where her mother was acting. In 1927, she went to New York and worked as a model and then as a circus hand and a store clerk and, and did just some like background acting as an actor, um, and did some work on Broadway. And then in 1930, she starred with James Cagney in Penny Arcade on Broadway. The show only lasted three weeks, but Al Jolson saw it and bought the rights to the play for $20,000, sold those rights to Warner Brothers with, on the condition that Blundell and Cagney both like appeared in the film, which, you know, that was perfect for her. She, under contract with Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers wanted to change her name to Inez Holmes, but she had would have nothing to do with that. So she ended up obviously keeping it was basically her own name. She appeared with James Cagney in a couple of other films and um, throughout the 1930s when she worked a lot. By the end of the 1930s, she had made almost 50 movies. So like in a decade, she made that many things. She ended up leaving Warner Brothers in 1939 and then continued to act in, on both stage and screen in the 1940s. But she was concentrating on theater, partly because she was relegated to like character and supporting roles. Um, in the last part of the decade. So she, I, I feel like she was like, yeah, yeah, I don't, like, <laughs> you don't want me, I don't mm-hmm. want you. Um, but she came back to Hollywood in 1950, and she received an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress uh, in a supporting role in the movie The Blue Veil, and then continued to play supporting roles like the, her role in Desk Set. She got a lot of acclaim for her performance as Ladyfingers in the movie The Cincinnati Kid, which got her a Golden Globe nomination and a National Board of Review win for Best Supporting Actress. She was married 
three times and had a couple of children. She was said to be arch nemesis, the arch nemesis of June Allison, who was the second wife of her second husband. So they like didn't get along very well at all. And then her third husband was kind of a jerk and like abused her in various ways, which is horrible. She ended up getting sick with leukemia and she ultimately died of that disease in California on Christmas Day in 1979. Um, and she is buried in Glendale, California. Wow. Oh, and fun fact, she, <laughs> I failed to mention this, she is in the movie Grease. It was one of her last performances. She plays the the waitress in the diner where they all go, hang out. Like, go hang out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought she was really good in this movie, and I don't know her that well. Mm-mm. I thought she had really beautiful features and a very expressive face. Yeah, I didn't realize that she was in Grace, and I hadn't really paid much attention to her before this movie. So, yeah, so I was glad to sort of, you know, see her for real. Who did yeah. you buy it? I bioed Spencer Tracy, and I can't believe that we have not done one of his movies yet, <laughs> considering <laughs> how many Katherine Hepburn movies we've watched. I <laughs> Because we watched a bunch um, of Catherine Hepburn and Cary Graham movies. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And really, I, I mean, she, obvious, obvious reason, she has much better chemistry with Spencer Tracy. So <laughs> we should have done one of those sooner. Um, <laughs> but here we are. So Spencer Bonaventure Tracy Ew. was born April 5th, 1900 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yes. And... His, <laughs> yes, another Midwesterner. <laughs> his, his mother was a Presbyterian from a wealthy Midwestern family, and his father was of Irish Catholic descent. Mm-hmm. Spencer was a difficult child with poor school attendance, and Same. he was raised yeah. Catholic. And at nine, he was placed in the care of Dominican nuns in the hope of reforming him. Uh He remarked later in life, I never would have gone back to school if there had been any other way of learning to read the subtitles in movies. (laughs) (laughs) He was fascinated with motion pictures, and he watched the same ones over and over again and then reenacted the scenes with his friends. Uh, He attended several Jesuit schools as a teenager, and he claimed that they took the badness out of him and helped him to improve his grades. Uh, At Marquette Academy, he and lifelong friend actor Pat O'Brien began attending plays together, and that's how he also developed an interest in theater. Uh, He never really cared for school much, and he wanted some excitement in his life, so he and O'Brien enlisted in the U.S. Navy together when Tracy turned 18. They went to the Naval Training Station in North Chicago, and they were still students when World War I came to an end, so they didn't actually serve in the war. Uh, he achieved the rank of seaman second class, but never went to sea, and he mm-hmm. was discharged in February 1919. Uh, he won a place at Ripon College in February 1921 and majored in medicine, but that's where he first discovered his talent for serious acting, and he you know, abandoned the medicine and later received a scholarship for the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Hmm. He spent seven years in theater working at a succession of stock companies and intermittently on Broadway. 
and his breakthrough came in 1930 when his lead performance in The Last Mile caught Hollywood attention. After a successful film debut in John Ford's Up the River starring Tracy and Humphrey Bogart, he was signed to a contract with Fox. And he was with Fox for five years and did great performances, but pretty much they were all flops in that, you know, he didn't gain any notoriety and the public doesn't really know who he was. Mm -hmm. um, even though he made 25 films, and he was the leading man in all of them. <laughs> None of them were hits, but The Power of Glory, which he made in 1933, is the film that most modern-day critics think is his best performance. In 1935, he joined MGM, and his career took off with a series of hit films. And in 1937 and 1938, he won consecutive Oscars for Captain's Courageous and Boys Town. Uh, he made three hit films supporting Clark Gable, who was MGM's principal leading man, and they kind of became known as a team uh, really? for the public. Which I didn't know. No, I didn't either. Uh, by the 40s, he was one of the studio's stop stars. And in 1942, he appeared with Katherine Hepburn in Woman of the Year, which started another popular partnership. They were in nine movies together over 25 years. Uh, he left MGM in 1955 and continued to work as a freelance star, but kind of was starting to grow weary of it. Uh, his personal life was messed up. He had a lifelong struggle with alcoholism, which was in his family from his father's side. And he became estranged from his wife in the 1930s. So they lived separately, but they never divorced. Huh. And he had a long-term relationship with Katherine Hepburn in private, which was an open secret in Hollywood, but the public didn't know about it. Um, although from what I read, he was just generally unfaithful both to yeah. his wife and to Katherine Hepburn, and had affairs with, like, tons of Hollywood stars. And I'm pretty sure he had an affair with Gene Tierney while he was with Katherine Hepburn. I'm shaking my uh -huh. fist. I know. <laughs> Who cheats on Katherine Hepburn? You get Katherine Hepburn, you just... You're done. your lucky stars. That's right. Towards the end of his life, he worked almost exclusively with director Stanley Kramer, and that is who he made his last film, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner With, in 1967. And he finished that movie just 17 days before his death on June 10th. Uh, they had a funeral mass for him on June 12th at the Immaculate Heart of Mary Catholic Church in East Hollywood. And the pallbearers were George Cooker, Stanley Kramer, Frank Sinatra, James Stewart, and John Ford. <laughs> if that... Gives that's any the, indication of his friends. Yeah, the measure of a man. And out of consideration for Tracy's family, Catherine Hepburn did not attend the funeral. Wow. Despite the fact that she lived with and cared for him until his death. Pretty sad end. And she, Catherine Hepburn did write about her life. She wrote a book and she talks a lot about her relationship with Spencer Tracy, if people yeah. are interested. I'm pretty sure my mom owns it and that as like a 10 year old girl, I opened it and tried to look up the salacious parts of her life. <laughs> this is why we're friends. <laughs> um, a lot of what I read about Spencer Tracy was that he was really well respected by other actors and considered to be highly skilled and very naturalistic in a way that wasn't as common for his peers. Hmm. Well, I'm not that surprised because 
you can sort of see that in this movie that he's sort of like it's it's hard to remember that he's acting person that's on screen isn't actually real yeah that's it seems like he's just sort of like casually slouching around yeah and making jokes and yeah i think that sometimes with some actors like that you're kind of like well that person's not that good of an actor because they're just being themselves and then you're like oh wait they actually are acting (laughs) yeah yeah. I did find a quote from Katherine Hepburn and and some of what I read about him was that he uh was just sort of like a tortured soul kind of person with like big mood swings, like really severe depressions and anxiety attacks and like mentally and emotionally tormented for a lot of his life and mm. you know, I think part of it was the alcoholism but part of it seemed to be probably undiagnosed mental health stuff going on he didn't seem to have a particularly happy life yeah that's a shame oh other disturbing thing i read about him was that he allegedly had an affair with judy garland when she was only 14 no just super creeps no i'm gonna pretend you didn't say that to me (laughs) here i was thinking that he just was a man with a hard life but it's just a creep yep so, desk set. <laughs> had you seen this movie? I had not, actually, and I really liked it. Oh, I I was didn't... glad you picked it. I didn't realize that you hadn't seen it, because I have seen this movie many times, and it is one of my favorites, I think. Oh, I love I love that this is one of your favorites. And <laughs> I have... It's basically the non-musical version of The Music Man. So... <laughs> <laughs> But with older people. But with older people. (laughs) And a library. Well, I mean, I guess there's a library in both. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, on your first watch, what what are the, like, main things that, like, have stayed with you since you watched it? They had really good chemistry. Mm Mm-hmm. And I liked that. I mean, there were a couple moments where I had sort of swoon moments. And I rarely have swoon moments when I'm watching, (laughs) uh movies but I really felt it like so here's the thing I've watched a bunch of Spencer Tracy Catherine Hepburn movies but most of the ones that I've seen the central conceit is that there's like tension around the gender like she is a woman who is acting in a way that is atypical for a woman and it's challenging his manhood and that's Mm -hmm. what like the tension in their relationship is and I felt that this movie was not that and I liked it better for not being that (laughs) right yeah because he even though his and we we don't know for the entire movie that he's not out to replace her with his computer we think that maybe he's out to we think that he's out to replace her with his computer it turns out he has like he's has all the respect in the world for her and for her brain, you know, and he's just like, yes, you are very, you were like ridiculously smart and ridiculously educated and, you know, you're good at your job and you like have a mastery of this like research department. So like that isn't in question for him. Like the one thing that he thinks she's dumb about is this like relationship with this, her boss. <laughs> so. Yeah. And that was the thing that seemed to me incongruous I mean I guess some people are like this but like she was so competent at her job and so good at managing the team Mm -hmm. and then like the one thing she was really dumb about and like incapable of controlling herself was this illogical relationship with this man who you know was just taking advantage of her and leading her on 
Yeah, so that that part didn't make sense to me, and I didn't know if it was just because Catherine Hepburn was playing the role. Mm-hmm. If I was like, was if this was someone else, would I have thought, no way would she have you know been led on by this man? But that part is that was one of the only things that didn't ring true for me mm-hmm. in in the movie. Although what was nice was that like you know Peg, her best friend, is basically like has that same opinion. That's like you know what's wrong with you. <laughs> Yeah. This guy is leading you on. He's been leading you on for seven years. He's never going to ask you to marry him, you know. And he just is like, he knows that you're just always going to be here, here. And one of these days you need to not be there for him to teach him a lesson. Because he just, like, takes advantage of you. And so it's nice that there's a character who's, like, saying all those things that we're, like, thinking as we're watching this. Yeah. She was great in it. And I really loved the atmosphere of female camaraderie like I wrote I mean the movie passes the Bechdel test immediately Mm -hmm. it's so great a lot of the conversation is not about men in relationships it's about their jobs I really like that and I like that it was a work environment where the women were supporting one another instead of trying to tear each other down even sort of across the departments Mm -hmm. the colleagues all seem to kind of be trying to help each other out and I like that even in the like brief moments that we see her like managing this new the junior researcher she's like thanks for doing this research you know good job on that project here's another project for you to take care of you know I just so you know I'm going to recommend you for a raise it's so neat to see this woman as the like head of the department and as a boss managing other people that like people outside of the department like obviously respect her and you know even when she becomes the like subject of gossip they're not like cutting her down as a person they're just like oh this is like the new gossip well, like everybody knows that she's like going with uh, Cutler it's really cool and I don't think we've seen a movie like this where we you know she's you know in charge of her her own fate and the like the fate of these other women and she's like totally like you said just like you know lifting them up and like she's built a cohesive department where like everyone helps each other they're respected across the the this huge company yeah i liked seeing her in that position although it did frustrate me that she was in that role but like officially in terms of her title they say well who's in charge of this like who's in charge of reference and they say it's mike yeah but she really runs the place i'm like well if she runs it then why is he in charge of it right (laughs) and you know she was kind of propping him up Mm -hmm. and then he's he gets a big promotion in the end and she's just like fighting to keep her job from being taken away by a computer yeah in sumner's defense and spencer tracy's character's defense he's like well who's in charge of this department and then even azai the ceo is like well you know bunny watson but like cutler is actually in charge of the department and he's like yeah, let's not even bother with Cutler. I just want to talk to her. He, It's like he, like, intrinsically understands how the department works. That, like, yeah, we all have, like, these people who are technically in charge of us, but they don't actually know how the sausage is made. So, like, <laughs> why bother with that? Yeah, and he did that, like, things like that a couple times during the movie uh, in a way that I thought was very modern in that he respected the women as colleagues and, mm-hmm. and competent. Even with Miss um, Warner, the computer technician who comes in, mm-hmm. uh, when the president comes down to see the demonstration, the president t- speaks to him and says, you know, tell me what's going on, like, show me this thing. And he's like, no, Miss Warner can can speak about it. 
Yeah. Well, and even when Miss Warner gets, like, upset, he's, like, he's not saying, like, you're hysterical, cut her down. He's, like, you're hysterical and there's no need to be hysterical in this situation. Just tell me what you did so we can fix it. She's, like, obviously flying off the handle. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing that made me like him is that he, he seemed like someone who was reasonable and just respected intelligence and competence regardless of who had it. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause at first I was getting annoyed with him, especially when he gave that test to Bunny mm-hmm. with all the like, do this problem, do this problem. And by the way, I couldn't answer like any of those. Oh no. <laughs> well, and it was great when she was like, when she asked an- answered the question about, the train that was like so complicated and you know and she was like figuring it out and then she was like don't you want to know like who how many people got off at whatever stop was and he was like I didn't ask you about that stop and she was like yes you did that's the second from the last stop on that line and by the way this many people got off (laughs) yeah I loved seeing her totally annihilate him with the test yeah (laughs) it was great and she was like just so classy the whole time she didn't even get mad that he was doing that, which you know, was a fairly degrading thing to do to someone, give them this intelligence test. She didn't even get mad. She was just like, oh, this is the answer. This is the answer. And he's just getting more and more flummoxed the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I thought she was she was really great. Um, and I even kind of liked the their proposal at the end where they had the computer involved. <laughs> Yeah, that was cute. Like it was it was on brand. <laughs> it was. That that computer was so funny though, like all the beeping, um which I read they used those beeping sound effects in subsequent movies as well. Oh, that's funny. Well, what was neat about that like the those last scenes where, you know, the computer is there, she realizes, I think at that point she knows that, like, the computer is not taking over her job, but somebody calls and, like, asks a question, and she's like, let me work with the computer to answer this question. Like, she's the one who's like, this is the right tool for the job, and, you know, let's use the tool that we have, which is, like, so brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And she was adaptable, and I loved how she protected the women on her team, too, and mm-hmm. wanted to make sure that they all had jobs. Like, uh, when Mike is like, well, you can move to the West Coast office, and I'll make sure you get a job. She's like, what about my team? I'm not leaving my team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All bosses should be like Bunny Watson. Women protecting women. Yes. <laughs> um, can we talk about the office Christmas party? Uh, yes. We can and we should. I wanted to go and I wanted to know why I was never at an office party that involved drinking champagne and people playing the piano and singing Cole Porter songs. Why has that never happened? I don't know. It seems like the perfect place and why are we not there? Uh, It's all stuff that would not ever be allowed now, like fraternizing, people being like really drunk and like throwing stuff around the office and like everyone making passes at one another like this is all stuff that you could never do now yeah well and it was funny because they like they got all got into it like two days before christmas or whatever and you know they have like a christmas tree up in the reference room and there's presents for everyone and everyone gets a present and bunny has this whole plan for you know how to make sure that the you know the errand boy gets a big tip out of legal like it's all a whole culture thing and then there's also the party where they're all drunk immediately before lunch (laughs) yeah it seemed like they were partying for hours yeah 
Um, I hope it was ours because they were extremely drunk. It, I was thinking a lot about the Christmas party in the apartment where, like, yes, and it's such a like interesting tool to use in a movie where you want to like let people's guards go down to like get to the next you know part of the plot or whatever to be like oh we'll just have everybody in the same room and we'll get them drunk so it's time for a party (laughs) and then they're drunk so it doesn't matter like what their regular characters would say because they're drunk (laughs) it reminded me of the episode of mad men where they get that account with the lawnmower company and Mm -hmm. then all get drunk at the party and ride around on the lawnmower and cut someone's foot off by accident. Oh my god. I have not seen this episode. I actually have not seen any episodes of Mad Men, but yes, that seems like yeah. of a piece. <laughs> a different time. Yeah. Yeah, I liked, I was thinking about the apartment as well watching this movie because it was similar, like, you know, office place romance. It was uh, kind of that genre of film where, like, it's just very focused on sort of, like, a big office building in New York and, like, the goings-on there. And I liked this movie so much better. (laughs) Yeah, totally. It's in the same... I mean, it's in what is now Rockefeller Center, I think. It takes place in that same building, so I was thinking also of 30 Rock. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, Yeah, I think... I read that this... It was really supposed to be based on CBS, but for some reason they filmed at Rockefeller Center. (laughs) Oh, beautiful girl, what a gorgeous creature, beautiful girl, let me call a preacher, what can I do but give my heart to you? Are you ready to talk about costumes? Um, Only if we can start with that red cape that she's wearing. I think during the Christmas party, uh, that's just like a full body magnificence that is, I immediately just was like, I would like that and I would like one in every color for all the seasons, please. Yes. I mean, pretty much everything that Catherine Hepburn wore in this movie, I loved and would wear myself. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I would do that cape. I would do that, like, beautiful silver shirt dress at the Christmas party. Oh my lord, Um, yes. The striped dress, that sort of, like, gray jacket in the first scene. She looked fabulous. Everything was kind of fit and flair, and uh, I just loved it. It was elegant, but it wasn't revealing. Yeah, and it was, like, fitted to her, but it wasn't, like, it wasn't overly feminine. Yes, and they were, like, serious sort of scholarly people, but... Uh, Yeah, it seems, like, office-appropriate. And also, I feel like we have to comment on the robe that Spencer Tracy wears that was really supposed to be Mike's. Loved that robe as well. Yes. Would wear it. (laughs) Would wear it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and Peg's dress for Christmas, the Christmas party, that's this, like, cute little black dress that's, like, I don't know, knee-length maybe, and had, like, three-quarters, looked like three-quarter sleeves, and it had this, like, pink and green sequined sparkly flower thing across the, like, chest and the um, shoulders, which, as I'm describing it, it sounds, like, gaudy and, like, disgusting. But in, like, in the movie, it just looks, it's, like, a, just such a great combination. Black and then this just, like, sparkly thing. The kind of, like, perfect office party attire. Oh, yeah. I mean, she looked fabulous, too. All the women in the office did. It was neat to see what everyone wore to work. The women in the the research department, but also, like, the men in legal and the other, like, receptionists 
who I think were the only other women in this movie. They all the other women were receptionists and yeah. secretaries. Yeah, it was neat to see like the work attire. Yeah, I liked that. I I thought this was refreshing. <laughs> this was, I feel like once we get into sort of this like late fifties, early sixties, it's like ah yes, wearable clothes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That people might actually wear out in public. <laughs> yeah. Not just like a giant muff or like a velvet column gown or whatever. <laughs> I think we would be remiss if we did not also discuss Spencer Tracy's fedora and how like in the opening scenes it's covering its his face. Yes. I did like that hat. He looked very good in that hat. Like I don't find him attractive at all, but I was like in the fedora, maybe. Yeah, I mean, he looks like all of my Wisconsin relatives. He, I <laughs> I'm not at all surprised that he's from Wisconsin. Um, oh. Yeah, the fedora was good. And it was such, I love things like that where you, like, don't see people's face for a while and you just, like, see the clothes that they're wearing and their, like, hats are covering their faces. That gets me every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of nice having a hat reveal with a man. You usually mm-hmm. see that done mm-hmm. with women mm-hmm. in movies. Oh, yeah, that's such a good point. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. What about a social justice message? Um, well, we've talked about that in a little bit, I think, just in terms of, you know, that there are women in charge of this department. I think there's also, we haven't talked much about just the fact of these women about to be displaced by technology and new technology, which is something that, like, really happened um, and continues to happen. Like you mentioned with hidden figures, you know, the the women who were the first computers in the space program, they were all replaced by computers, non-human computers, who could do the computations faster, which was like math, so slightly different than, you know, this computer that's supposed to, like, do the research faster. But, you know, but I think that this movie is definitely portraying that, like, pivotal moment in time where it seems like, oh, computers are going to do, do a lot of good for us, the lived experience, the actual history is like, you they did a lot of good, but also they like totally screwed up our workforce. I don't yeah, know. eliminated a lot of jobs. Yeah. I think I might have told you this before, Hill, but my mom still refuses to get an easy pass because she says they eliminate jobs for people and uh-huh. she will drive like hugely out of her way just to go to a toll worker. And when she goes through the toll, she tells them, I came here because you deserve to have a job. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like also double paying for her tolls because <laughs> twice as much. I mean, she's keeping our highways going That's and right. supporting the working man. Yeah, I mean it's important. <laughs> she's a good egg. <laughs> yeah, I mean I do think that the movie showed a human face to the workforce, and that it was important that these people had jobs, and I appreciated that about it. Yeah, although, like, the end of it is that, you know, the reason why he couldn't tell them what was really happening was because of the gossip network. You know, they knew that there was all this gossip, and they didn't want anyone to know. They, They couldn't tell anyone about the merger. No one could find out about it because of these, like, you know, I guess, like, the market, they were afraid the market values would, like... I think drop, right? (laughs) Right. But, oh, yeah, because they're merging. And so they were, yeah, so there's, like, that added element, too, of, like, you know, companies combining and, like, becoming monopolies, potentially. And, like, is that actually good or is that a net loss for the world? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, a loss. And (laughs) I did think it was hilarious how everyone got pink slips, even... (laughs) 
Richard Sorry, and he yeah. wasn't on the payroll <laughs> no. and like the president. He was like, I don't even work here. <laughs> they did a good job of setting up automation. Mm-hmm. Yes, they did. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. So we talked about the Bechtel test a little bit, but um, do you agree that it passes? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, like, I mean, like, basically with immediately, right? Mm-hmm. You know, All About Eve passes, but it's like, All About Eve is, you know, a fairly catty movie, whereas, like, this movie passes, and it's a fairly, you know, like we were saying, it's a really supportive, the women are, like, not only talking to each other about work stuff, but it's, like, in a supportive you know, they're lifting each other up. They're like they're making their lives, each other's lives, easier and better and more interesting. Yeah, I, there's really no. Well, I guess maybe like Miss Warner, but it's not like they really make fun of any of the women that much. Like even the new uh, reference worker gets mm-hmm. some things wrong, and it's kind of played for laughs. But at the end of the day, it's like, no, we also love and care about her, and we're supporting her career too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and they're like not, <clears throat> like Miss Warner is like, oh, you're like, I'm the enemy, and you've like been treating me with suspicion and blah, blah, blah. But like we know as the viewers that like, they're treating her with suspicion, not because, like, of her, <laughs> because they, if they knew the truth, they would be like, oh, yeah, we'll work with you. But they're, they know that something is up and that they're, like, potentially going to lose their job. So they just don't, like, like, the situation isn't moving in their favor, they don't think. Yeah, exactly. They don't just hate her because she's a new woman coming into the workplace. Right. Uh, are we ready to rate? I think so. Oh, you should go first because this is the first time that you're, you've seen this. I'm going to give this movie a four. Yes. I really liked it, and I would rewatch it, and I would recommend it to other people. And I'm going to go on the record now as saying it's my favorite Hepburn-Tracy pairing that I've seen thus far. That is super high praise. Yeah. I mean, I liked it a lot. Like, it was a good romance. It was funny. It felt modern. I Yeah. Well, what about you? What did you think? I give it a 4.25. We can now do quarter. <laughs> <laughs> Only because, um, and we haven't really talked about this, but I've it, this movie could have been 30 minutes shorter. <laughs> like, at some point I was like, why is this movie more than two hours long? It's not a terrible thing to watch, but like, it could be 30 minutes shorter. Yeah, that's true. Some of the scenes did go on too long. Mostly the ones with Mike. Because who yeah. cares about him? Right. When, like, we've, like, established that he's, like, not a great guy and he's not a good lover and he's not, like, he doesn't care about her. So, like, we only need to see one of those scenes. I agree. But I, I definitely am going to rewatch this. And um, I own a number of Hepburn movies and this is not one of them. So I may need to add it to my collection. Well, I bought this movie for when I realized in preparation for this episode that I did not already own it. So <laughs> love it. Maybe I'll just borrow your copy. That's right. <laughs> uh, so Hill, what is our next movie? Our next movie is Casablanca. Can we even handle it? (laughs) You might call it a classic. 